everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 63 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I, as always, am your host today. Today we're going to be thinking about Caribbean immigration to the United States and As you know, if you're listening to this episode when it's been released, it's February, which is Black History Month in America. And last year, um, 2021, Black History Month in America in February, um, I did a series of kind of the points of collision between African-Americans and Black British people, histories and events. Um, And we looked at the Battle of Bamber Bridge, I think, we looked at Malcolm X's visit to Birmingham, to Smethwick in Birmingham. And we looked at some other things that, oh, African-American um, Black British literature. Um, and I really enjoyed doing that series. I love American history. It is so interesting to me. Um, and I like to look at the parallels, as you probably know, between the experiences of black people in both Britain and in America and in the Caribbean sometimes. So given this apt time that is US Black History Month, I thought this time round I'd look at how the Caribbean crosses over and intersects with America in regards to race relations, um, migrations, and some of the individuals that we perceive and see as big, big names in civil rights, big names in the arts, whether that be writers, poets, um, actors, and, you know, the background of those people, which aren't always actually um, as African-Americans. So we'll be looking at the Caribbean roots of a lot of people that become American over time or are the children of uh, immigrants from the Caribbean or might have been born um, in the Caribbean themselves and migrated over. Um, and there's a whole variety of people when we think about it. Marcus Garvey, um, I think he's classed as Caribbean. I don't think people would call him American. Um, he's from Jamaica. Sidney Poitier um, being from the Bahamas. Harry Belafonte, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Malcolm X, his father was Grenadian. Cicely Tyson, Kwame Turi, um, also known previously as Stokely Carmichael, literally moving from Trinidad. Um, Claude McKay, Cyril Briggs, Richard B. Moore, Shirley Chisholm, and even, you know, as current today as Kamala Harris, um, the US's vice president. So there's a lot of Caribbean influence um, in America in some particular states and regions and at particular points of history as well. So today we're going to be looking at the patterns of immigration, starting with um, slavery, unfortunately, and going all the way into the 1920s, the mid-1920s, 1930s, um, just to understand the background of these migrations with some examples along the way, um, some little case studies. We're not looking at any one particular Caribbean country or island. I think when we look at um, Caribbean people in Black Britain and in Britain, we think more about people coming from the Anglophone Caribbean, as in people that were in countries colonised by the British. However, when we think about these migrations in the context of America, you've got to think about um, some of the islands like the US Virgin Islands, um, who are a part of the US. You've also got to think about the geographical distance being so different to that of Britain. You know, it took weeks to get from the Caribbean to Britain, 
whereas it wouldn't have taken so long to get from the Caribbean to America. I believe the flight from Jamaica, from Montego Bay to Miami is just under an hour. I think it's like 45 minutes. So as you can see, I mean, not everybody would have been flying because we're talking about, you know, all the way back to like the 1700s. Um, but, you know, when we think about those migrations um, in the modern day in parallel to the migrations to Britain from the Caribbean, it's quite a, it's a different thing. It's a different trip. It's a different journey. Um, and the reasons were different. Um, they can't be compared, I think. Well, they can be compared, sorry, but they can't be just seen as the same kind of movement, if that makes sense. So this week's episode will all be about immigration, movements, migrations, all that good stuff. Um, and then in the next few weeks of February, I think we'll get into some of the individuals and look at some of the time periods as well, more specifically, and the um, cities um, a little bit more specifically, to look at the Caribbean influence um, on those people or those places. The first people um, that began to migrate, well, not necessarily the first, um, one of the first groups of people that came from the Caribbean to the US um, was unfortunately those enslaved peoples um, that would have been enslaved in the Caribbean. And then in the 17th century, um, there was actually a group of um, people enslaved by the British from Barbados, um, and they were transported to uh, South Carolina and Virginia to work on the plantations there. Um, and so in both of those states, this was kind of the early beginnings of Caribbean communities in, in both of them, those areas. And you might be thinking, well, why did this happen? Why did they go via Barbados or why were they coming from Barbados? Well, at that time, um, America was still colonised by the British so the British was essentially moving the people that they'd enslaved around their different colonies. And the idea was that um, enslaved people coming from um, the Caribbean, as opposed to directly from Africa, um, would be, and I quote, seasoned. Um, in an article um, by Susan Westbury, she has noted, and I quote, that historians have maintained that many Africans were subjected to their first experience of slavery in the West Indies before being sent to the mainland. This sojourn has been described as a period of seasoning during which Africans, while exposed to the terrible cruelties of Caribbean slavery, became accustomed to their new labour and were therefore more vendable in the continental British colonies than were slaves brought directly from Africa. Um, and that's from John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom. Um, so this idea that uh, enslaved people coming directly from Africa needed to be broken uh, into this system of slavery, and that was done in the Caribbean um, because of how brutal Caribbean slavery was, um, was, it was perceived to be by um, the overseers and the people in charge. Um, and so, yeah, they were, I'd like, the term is like broken into or seasoned. Um, and then they were taken to Virginia um, and South Carolina, which we said was the kind of two main receiving areas for um, enslaved people coming from the Caribbean, particularly Barbados. I'm not sure why, particularly Barbados, but I think it was the type of crop. I think it was the production of tobacco, maybe. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think it was it was the same um, crop that was being produced um, and farmed by the enslaved people. And so they were going to just do what they'd already been doing um, in the Caribbean, essentially. And so I'm going to go through a little kind of uh, chronological 
geographical rundown of, of these migrations. Obviously, we've started 17th century, where virtually all the enslaved people in South America, South Carolina, um, came from Barbados. During the 18th century, it was estimated that up to 20% of enslaved people in South Carolina were from the Caribbean. Um, so this means that the number obviously went down from virtually all enslaved people to 20%. Um, and the majority of enslaved people in the northern states were also from Car- of Caribbean origin. Um, they overwhelmed, they outnumbered, should I say, the number of enslaved people um, that were coming directly from Africa. So this idea of seasoning um, and breaking people in is clearly a pattern that was happening um, throughout the 17th and 18th century. Um, So it meant that Caribbean communities grew in places like Boston, South Carolina, Virginia and parts of New York. Um, In 1860, um, this article that I've read estimates that one in five Bostonians were born in Barbados or elsewhere in the Caribbean. Um, So you can see um, it's quite a large percentage, considering how small Caribbean islands are and considering the majority of those populations were taken forcibly from Africa. So, yeah, these are I think these are really small numbers. The population of Caribbean islands and countries have grown, obviously, since then. Um, But to think that one out of five um, of Bostonians were born in Barbados. So this is the first generation. This isn't even their children or their children's children um, as the generations of um, enslaved people continue this are these are people born there and taken so not from um, Africa and then seasoned because obviously they were born in Africa these are people that were probably taken from Africa and it would be their children or their grandchildren that would have been born in the Caribbean colonies like Barbados and then moved over um, which again just kind of highlights the the separation of of black families under a system like slavery then and it didn't just impact one place it impacted Africa in the first instance and then Caribbean in the second and then America in the third in some cases as families were split up across different states and plantations and countries um so yeah you can kind of see some of the systems in play I really didn't want this episode to be about slavery but it is also relevant it's like underpins race relations, especially when we think about America. But it is kind of, you can't really talk about race without talking about slavery. And a lot of people don't want to have that conversation. um, And, you know, slavery should be forgotten. But you can't forget it because it underpins everything. Now, another interesting thing I kind of felt when I was researching this episode was if you remember or you listened to the episodes I did on the foods at Christmas time, um, the foods like pepper pot soup, pepper pot from Guyana and um, sorrel from, well, all over the world. Um, But those foods especially, um, there was influence, they were Caribbean coming from Africa, but also found themselves in America pre-20th century migration of Caribbean people. And I really wondered why, but it's very interesting to me that when I was kind of wondering how these foods ended up from the Caribbean and from Africa to the US pre-19th century, um, I didn't think about slavery um, and the fact that people were taken from the Caribbean to America. Um, And so that's how those foods and those recipes and those cultures would have travelled because these are people, as we mentioned before, that were born in the Caribbean to, you know, people taken from Africa, um, but they would have had a certain culture, albeit 
one that kind of resulted and revolved around slave societies. But they would have had the Caribbean culture that they carried with them as they travelled. Um, and I've just found that really interesting because it kind of links back to the, the food episodes that were done just before um, Christmas um, in 2021. I think there would be about episodes in the late 50s if you want to go back and listen. Um, I really enjoyed doing those. Food is obviously always something enjoyable. Um, so, yes. Now... American Civil War, of course, um, ended in 1865. Um, and at that point, um, it was said that the foreign-born black population in the US, so people that were born outside of America that were black, was actually determined to be predominantly of Caribbean origin. Um, and that increased between 1850 and 1900 from 4,000 to over 20,000. So this is huge growth, five times even. Um, and it meant that large contributions have been made by Caribbean people as early as this kind of 19th century point and throughout the 19th, 20th and, of course, the 21st century. Um, so as the 20th century begins, Caribbean nationals begin to migrate to the US as free people, obviously now migrating of their own free will. Um, how much that was tied to their ancestors potentially having moved during slavery... I'm not too sure. Um, but this migration continued, obviously, now with free will. Um, the trend increased up until the 1920s, but slowed naturally due to the Great Depression, um, which was 1929, I believe. Um, and so that had an impact in the 30s. Um, but it did mean that um, the US population of black foreigners, as they're known or called, um, it did grow. It grew quite a lot from 55,000 in 1900 to 178,000 in 1930. And the majority of them, again, coming from the Caribbean. Of course, people have been migrating from Africa, um, but the majority of them were coming from the Caribbean. And I think that links again to the, the distance um, between the two places, the two regions. They are basically next door neighbours. Um, and so that migration would have been a little bit easier and trekking halfway across the world to England um, because, let's be honest, even on the most simple level, the flight back or the plane, um, the boat ride, ship um, passage back, if you go to England and you don't like it, is unaffordable, essentially, when we think about the Windrush generation. Um, however, it would have been a little bit different um, going to somewhere as close as America. As the 1920s moves on, Caribbean people move to the US for... Um, mostly employment purposes and higher wages in comparison to the Caribbean because at that point it was the British Caribbean, um, especially that they were coming from, um, and they were experiencing a lot of economic hardship following World War I. Um, America really did not partake in World War I, and it put them in good stead for the 20s. That's why they had the Roaring Twenties, whereas Europe was decimated um, and trying to kind of regain some kind of economic strength but it meant that um there was economic hardship in the colonies also exacerbated by the fact that there was a decline in the demand for sugar um as cuba and brazil were kind of big competition in producing sugar and they were kind of producing it at a quicker rate than they would have been in the british caribbean meaning that there was a decline for the demand there um and yeah so people coming over from the caribbean that had kind of been in ways decimated due to the demand in sugar culture and 
um, Britain's lack of funding. 1930 saw a lot of labour riots in the Caribbean um, think because of um, unrest due to poor wages, poor working conditions and a lack of jobs. So they're looking for kind of a better option. And the US is the better option at that point, thinking about the fact that Britain at that point don't have a nationality act. Um, so there isn't really the incentive um, for them to move to Britain at that point, which is why America made more sense. The people from the Caribbean that were migrating over to the US did a range of things. They weren't just labourers um, as they might have been um, during obviously the enslaved era, uh, although they weren't necessarily labourers, they were enslaved people um, that worked agriculturally. Um, so there was a middle class migrating of teachers, nurses and civil servants who were unhappy with low income and the kind of lack of opportunities that these careers attracted in the Caribbean. And that's still the case, unfortunately, in some parts of the Caribbean now, um, where there is just not the demand for these roles and um, kind of lack of opportunity there, really. It's led to something called the brain drain, where you see um, a lot of young people in these regions leaving, um, having got the qualifications required to be a kind of employable person elsewhere um, and going elsewhere to, to earn a better better wage and have a better quality of life with more money. Um, the latter group of people mentioned, um, those teachers, nurses, civil servants, um, they also would um, advance their education once in the US at that point. Um, I don't believe the University of the West Indies was created yet. That was 1948. So in the 20s, um, that wouldn't have been a thing. So some of them would have actually been coming to America for higher education. Um, and that created this kind of pool of white collared professional Caribbean Americans in America uh, who would have kind of settled into the middle class. And we're going to talk about how they were racialized a little bit differently to African-Americans, because um, it's a really, like, ten tentious, tentious, that's not a word, um, a tense topic at times, but it's an important one to consider. I will only be considering it today. I, I won't go into depth with it, because it's a quite a, a big one to wrap your head around, I think, um, and probably need a standalone episode, but it is important to think about. Anyway, I'll get back to that. But the Immigration Act... Um, of 1924 actually starts to put a spanner in the works of Caribbean people that wanted to move. Um, of course, it happens all the time. When a country um, doesn't want any more immigrants from a particular place, they start to restrict it. They've done it in Britain. I've talked about it on this podcast before. Um, and 1924 in America was no different. However, I don't... It's not really recorded as being, like directly targeting Caribbean people. They weren't moving over in numbers that were that huge. There were other groups that were also migrating. Um, and because as well they were coming from British colonies, they were also included in the British quota that America set in 1925. I believe it was around 34,000 people could come over. Um, however, Britain, British people weren't really migrating to the US in those numbers. So it was okay that the Caribbean were... Um, taking up those places because um, British people weren't really doing that um, and so the quota was kind of enough for those quote-unquote um, people in the British colonies that would have been part of British nationality. And just to highlight this point I kind of wanted to bring in a little case study 
um, or an example um, of a man called Claude McKay, who was, um, he's referred to as Jamaican-American. He's Jamaican, if you ask me, but <laughs> maybe that's contentious um, and a bit uh, controversial to, to say that. Um, but he was a central figure in the Harlem Renaissance, um, obviously in New York. Um, he left in... 1912 to go to the US to attend Tuskegee Institute which is now Tuskegee University however that university is in South Carolina and he really felt that racism down there and was shocked by how intense it was um, public facilities were segregated um, and he really didn't like um, the kind of way that it functioned um, he and I quote said it was about it was semi-military machine-like existence um, and he left and went to Kansas State Agricultural College, which is now Kansas State University. Um, and when he was there, he read W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, which then had a large impact on him and his political mindset and involvement in political movements in the future, um, and his art, I'm sure, as well, his, his writing, his poetry. Um, and he becomes, as I said, a central figure in the Harlem Renaissance, and this is a man that's migrated as a student from Jamaica. Um in 1912 so as early as that um and we don't well I say we don't maybe some people definitely do but you know we don't necessarily always think about these really early migrations and I say really early so it's just start of the 20th century but um to think that the Caribbean communities in places like Harlem were were building culture and cultural movements and poetry and art that was so influenced by the Caribbean in America um, it's been very special to me. I think that's quite interesting and, and very cool to know, um, especially because maybe as coming from the context of British history, it's obviously not something that would be talked about or studied because it's out of the spheres of, of what would be classed as even British involvement in history. But, you know, without the British Empire and all these other things, these movements and migrations wouldn't maybe have happened and those patterns of, of people moving around um, wouldn't be there and wouldn't be in place. In this time period as well, and moving into the 1930s, you've got Caribbean nationals like Marcus Garvey, who comes over to America to sow the kind of seeds and ideas relating to Pan-Africanism um, and black power in America. Um, and his voice was integral and a very loud voice um, when it came to black power in the US. Um, Marcus Garvey is an interesting one. I think maybe being Jamaican and seeing how revered he is in Jamaica. I've never known him to be anything other than Jamaican. But when we think about um, black power movements in the US, his name is one of the first to be called, and rightly so. So I find it, yeah, quite interesting that such a leader and such a trailblazer, you know, this man is, is long before Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the civil rights movements and leaders of the 60s um, and late 50s, this man is here a long time before that, coming from Jamaica and taking these ideas of black power um, and, and black people advancing and being liberated from the oppression that they're being faced with in the Caribbean and in America and in Britain. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. That is all we have time for. Um, we're going to continue on with that migration trend and when we get into the 50s and 60s we'll have a few more um, interesting figures. I think we'll have an episode about the Harlem Renaissance coming up as well um, because they were all so inspired um, by the Caribbean and those migrations that we've mentioned today. 
So thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.